I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Jody Millman, J.D., author, attorney, and uh, her new book is The Midnight Call. Everyone dreads the terrifying call that comes in the middle of the night. Your worst fears could be realized, your life changed forever in the minute it takes to answer. Jesse Martin never expected to hear the word murder on the other end of the line. That ringing phone was the sound of an ill-fated trajectory that would tilt her world, throwing her life into free fall. In Jody Susan Millman's heart-pounding courtroom thriller. Her new book was shortlisted for the Clue Award and was designated as Best Police Procedural by ShantireViews.com. She's an attorney who blogs about publishing law and is the co-host and co-producer of the popular podcast Backstage with the Bard Avon. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jody. Nice to be here, Catherine. Right, that midnight call does sound pretty terrifying. Uh, even this is a courtroom thriller, uh, is and you know as I described it. But is it based on a true story, or I mean, you're a lawyer, uh, so I'm assuming that you've had maybe similar kinds of real life circumstances happen. Well, to that's you? actually a two prong question. The okay. first question to answer the first question is the murder was inspired by a brutal homicide that occurred in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1979. And similar to the Midnight Call, the true crime was committed by a popular teacher who brutally maimed and butchered a student who was randomly trespassing through his backyard late one night. So the actual incident is personal to me because, I, first of all, I was a student of the teacher who committed the murder. Um, in 1969, I was um, a student at Forbes Junior High School here in Poughkeepsie, and I had, we had a very popular teacher. His name was Albert Fentress. And then uh, fast forward 10 years later, after I graduated from law school, I opened up the Poughkeepsie Journal, and boom, there's his picture on the, the, the masthead indicating that he's being held in connection with the student's death. So it was really kind of, the, the story really kind of was inspired by something that, that hit me very personally. So what was your reaction? I mean, how did you feel? I mean, that's when you, I mean, you, you describe the situation, but just your, you know, your teacher accused of murder, like what went through your head? Right. Well, it was, it was absolutely shocking. It was shocking because Fentress was one of those teachers that everybody adored. I mean, he was a really intelligent guy, very charismatic. When we were in class, if we were studying India, He'd set up a huge Indian banquet, and we'd have to wear saris, and the guys would have to wear Nehru jackets. I mean, he, he would come dressed up as um, um, historical figures in order to capture our attention. And so we really loved and admired the teacher. And then <coughs> to open up the Poughkeepsie Journal and see his paper there, it was his picture there, it was totally shocking, and it was really unfathomable for us. You know, at that time Don't- I was, you know, in my mid-20s, but now, as an adult, and I reflect back, to me it's even more shocking now that, first of all, I was in this class, and was I in danger at that particular time? You know, were any of my friends in danger at that particular time? Um, it was just a really kind of a, a shocking situation to be in. Well, now that you've had, uh, uh, you know, time has passed and you, you're looking back at it, do you go over your experience or your relationship with him piece by piece and say, oh, this was that was actually there, that kind of behavior, but I wasn't able to recognize it. Because, you know, when people commit these kinds of crimes, we always, often we see on, the, um, on TV, 
with neighbors saying, you know, this is like a really nice guy and we never expected it. But and that seems to be an occurring theme from people who knew, you know, these kinds of, well, let's say this kind of murder situation with, right. with your teacher. Yeah. You know, and, and that's exactly how I felt. And, and you know, it's, it's the type of thing that now when you look at his personality and you look at, um, I mean, he was a pretty uptight kind of guy and he was very fussy and, he, and finicky and demanding. He was a very demanding, intellectually demanding teacher. You could see that some of the signs were there, but as a 14-year-old, you don't see it. Do you know what I mean? Because you're, you're in the situation, you're ninth grade, you, you, most students revere their teachers at that particular point, and you're not looking for clues. Now, as an adult, I can look back and see where some of the signs perhaps were there, and maybe I even, saw, I even recognized that when the, the murder occurred in 1979. Yeah, so, 14, and then fast forward, you've, you've had many, lots of experiences, right, that kind of, break, kind of well, affect how you can now look at, at his behavior when you were 14 Correct. years old. That is scary, thinking about he could have done something to you or done something to your friends. Um, so, okay, so that you know, is kind of the... You know, we're through community, because yeah. when you, you have a teacher who is revered, I mean, he's part of the entire community. It wasn't just me. You had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students that, you know, he was in contact with. So um, from that perspective, it was, it was very shocking and traumatic for our community and continues to be because he's, uh, he's, in, he's not incarcerated, but he's in a mental health facility and has the option of seeking to be released every two years. And his next um, application can be made in April of 2020. So every two years, it's like ripping the Band-Aid off because it's on the front page of our paper again. And so what does the community do about that? I mean, obviously, there must be repercussions. Do they, is there anything that they do or anything that happens every two years when they think that he could be out on the streets again? Well, I think under the law, they have the right to um, submit letters to the review board you know, to um, indicate whether or not he should remain um, in the institution. And I know that the district attorney's office here in Poughkeepsie is very active in trying to keep him in the hospitals, the hospital system. So, you know, again, it's, um, it's, again, it's just kind of a recurring, um, it's, a sad, it's a very sad story. And, but, you know, out of that, st- I, I, I wanted to stress that my, my story is not really retelling of this particular murder. What I did was I took the seedling of a teacher murdering a student and then created my whole cast of characters around that. So none of the, all of my characters are fictitious. It's just that one little seedling that kind of motivated me and inspired me to write this particular tale. All right, so let's talk about your characters um, that that you've created. And they are different, as you say. They're fictitious. You know, it's fiction. So... um, how, you know, in terms of your characters, how do you create them? What's the process, uh, starting with this seed, of this example of what happened to you when you were 14, or your teacher, anyway, um, and then brings you to this point to write the book? Well, what I wanted to do was I wanted to tell the story from three different points of view. I wanted the reader to be able to kind of get an inside view as to what it would be like to, to see through the eyes of different characters to analyze a crime. 
So I wanted to be absolutely accurate in the way that I portrayed the law. And as a lawyer, I, you know, that's why I chose to write a courtroom drama, a legal thriller, so that I could really bring my readers into that courtroom, into that particular crime. But when you write a story like this, you have different aspects of the story that has to be told. You have Jessie's story, and she's, of course, she's um, my protagonist. She's a young female attorney who's starting out and is pregnant and gets a call from her mentor, Terrence Butterfield, that he's murdered someone needs her help. So there are certain facts and that Jesse can tell you. Jesse's got a deep emotional attachment to Terrence and also feels a duty as an attorney to protect him and to help save his life. So I wanted to capture that through my character of Jesse. Then we have Jeremy Kaplan, who's the unscrupulous uh, criminal defense attorney. I wanted him to be able to have direct contact with um, Terrence Butterfield, the killer. So he's the one we kind of get to know Terrence through his interaction through Jeremy, and we also get to see that, that Jeremy and Jesse had a prior relationship. And finally, my third character is Hal Samuel, who's the district attorney, who's the prosecutor. He and Jesse also have a past, but again, you're getting the prosecutor's version and view of a crime. So you're getting a 360-degree view of the crime from Jesse, Hal, and Jeremy's point of view. That's very clever. Uh, And uh, you mentioned when you're talking about Jessie, you said she was pregnant? Yes. Yes, she's uh, like seven months pregnant, yes. Okay, so how significant is that? Uh, Yeah. Well, that creates... um, uh, I also wanted to have Jessie suffer from um, medical issues in connection with her pregnancy. And so it was also really important for me to get those aspects um, accurate. So fortunately, I have some very good friends who are um, OBGYNs. So they were able to give me input as to, you know, I mean, of course, I've, I've had children and I remember what it was like to be pregnant, but fortunately, I didn't suffer from any kind of maladies. And I wanted Jesse to have a malady, so I was able to speak with my friends and get some insight and kind of, kind of create um, a situation that's created by the stress of her having to deal with um, her relationship with Terrence. Um, arise throughout the uh, th- throughout the novel, and it's kind of interesting because Jesse really is the the glue that connects all of the characters together. She's she's obviously got a relationship with the killer. She's had a past love relationship with the district attorney and a prior work relationship with the criminal defense attorney. So she's really the hub that really holds this book together. Jody, why do you think people are so fascinated with? Uh, we, we love courtroom thrillers I mean it, it seems to me I mean they, they are very popular they're sort of and, and, and murder and um, what do you think yeah what's the reason for the popularity uh, for these well, that, kind this that's kind of really John- good question and I, I've been giving that quite a bit of thought lately because I write um, an article a uh, quarterly article for InSync magazine which is the Sisters in Crime uh, quarterly and I'm writing one now on courtroom drama and I'm really thinking about that issue. What is so attractive about us? And the t- I think it's the tension because when, you ha- when you're in a courtroom scene, you don't know what the next question is going to be by an attorney or what the next answer is going to be 
by the person who's on the witness stand. There's a constant state of tension that draws us in so that we're literally on the edge of our seats waiting to see what's going to happen next. And that's really what I try to create in my book. And, um, you know, as for courtrooms itself, I, I, I think it, we're all attracted to um, uh, not the seedier side of life, but we all live good lives. But then there's, there's a uh, dark underbelly of society, and I think courtroom dramas bring us to that, uh, allow us to view that, that dark underbelly of society at a very safe level. You know, we're removed yeah. from it. We're not in it. So it, we're not in it. We have our, I don't want to say mundane necessarily, but some we may perceive our lives as mundane, and this gives us excitement, yes. as you say, drama. Um, now, as an attorney, you you practice and you also have a podcast. But and what made you decide? Now I'm going to start writing. Well, you know, I'm I'm really semi-retired at this point. Um, I started practicing in 1979, but I started working in law offices like when I was in high school. So I've been working in, in the legal profession for a long, long time. Um, what what drove me to write this particular story was that I, it was always in the back of my mind, even when I was practicing law. It was like one story that kind of, it, it clung to me. And it also was like a dark cloud over the community. So I felt that this was a story that I wanted to tell. It just seemed like a natural fit for me. And honestly, I mean, it's, um, if you look at, I, I have a master's also in English literature. And if you look at a lot of the great writers um, like James Fenimore Cooper, Mark Twain, a lot of these guys had legal backgrounds, which is kind of interesting. So that was kind of an incentive to me to say, okay, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. Um, but then when I sat down to, to write the story, I kind of said, okay, I'm a lawyer, I'm going to write what I know. And that's what led me to write, you know, a legal thriller. Yeah. Well, you're also a blogger. Did the blogging come yeah. first or after? Yeah. After. Definitely afterwards, yeah, yeah. The, the blogging was, the blogging, as you may or may not know, is it's, you're stretching a different muscle. You know, when you're writing fiction, you're, you're involved, you're really like in another world. You know, you're kind of daydreaming and you're, you know, writing down thoughts and you're just kind of letting your mind go. It's very stream of conscious. Where when you're blogging, I feel it's much more like writing a term paper, at least for me, because I like to write about a publishing law and things that I, um, and aspects of um, the writing industry that writers may not have access to, which is publishing law. So that's your nonfiction, and that's, as you that's say, totally different. Yeah, yeah, like writing a term paper. But I've also written a guide to a Broadway, too. Um, I know, which is like totally separate <laughs> from all of this stuff. But um, in 1978, my dad came out with a book called Seats New York, and it's a guide to all the Broadway theaters with seating charts and, and how to get free parking. It's like a Zagat's guide to Broadway. And then it became a bestseller. But unfortunately, my dad unexpectedly passed away at the time the book came out, and it became a bestseller for the publishing company. So they contacted me, and they said, look, um, you know, will you go on tour? Will you talk about the book? And by the way, would you be interested in doing the next editions? So I did a couple of editions um, subsequently um, of the Seats, the Seats uh, uh, Guide series, and 
in 2008, I wrote the last one. I said, you know what? I really want to write fiction. I really want to tell this story. So that's when I started to really get serious about writing The Midnight Call. Well, the seats, it sounds like that's a precursor to the information you can get on the Internet now. It was. At the time, yeah. you could not get it. I mean, we literally had to call and visit every single Broadway theater and every single, like the Metropolitan Opera House and, and Yankee Stadium. I mean, we went to every single venue, and this is before the Internet. You know, you said, Jody, you said you're semi-retired. It doesn't yes. sound like you're the kind of person who would be retired in any way, semi or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> From the practice of law, let me put it that way. You know, I, I, do, I practice friends and family law, you know, like closings and parking tickets for friends. But I'm busy doing other things, writing, and I'm involved with philanthropy and, um, you know, my podcast. So life is busy. It sounds very busy, and it sounds like you're just, I mean, well, as I say, not retired, but going forward, taking your, what's taking, and I think people tend to, well, they want to do that now, take all of those skills, you're a lawyer, and just put those skills into very different, perhaps, venues than you even ever thought about, right? Um, Absolutely, and and also I think that people have an obligation to give back. I know that, you know, when I was practicing law, I was on, you know, a lot of boards and also uh, was active in, in the politics in the community. And now that I've finished practicing law, I'm able to, you know, return the favor to some of those um, organizations by giving time and energy, you know, and, and helping them out now. Yeah, I think that's very important. I think that's very typical or more typical, let's say, of uh I'll say our generation, because um, I include myself in your generation. I wonder right. if the uh, millennials feel the same way. I mean, and uh, you can't tell, perhaps until they get older, but whether they they have that are instilled with those same kinds of values. Well, I think they are because if you look at what's going on in politics now, um, they're raising their voices. I mean, I think you have a very active community of people who you know aren't going to take what's going on. Um, in our country right now, and they're making their voices known, especially if you look at women's rights. You see a lot of young women who are being stripped of their rights in several states, and they're going crazy, and they're making their voices known. And they have to, because those laws are affecting them. I mean, uh, you know, the abortion laws aren't really affecting you and I. I mean, they're really too old. we're too old for that. But these gals, it's affecting their everyday lives, and they're, they're making their voices heard. I think it's fantastic. But also, I think maybe they're not affecting our lives directly, but indirectly, it does affect our lives, right? It affects our communities. Oh, theoretically, and, and, oh, yeah. theoretically, it does. I mean, that's a whole that's a whole other issue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, oppression, how, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that's as far as you're going to go with it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah, I mean. Um, no, but but we're talking about my book, not about my. We're talking about news. your book, but we're we've evolved. Yes, we are. Okay, um, but this is well. The one of the characters in your book is pregnant, so it, it's right. sort of a yeah. So we that that's a you know, issue I, related you know, to that, right? You you and I are of the generation where you know Roe versus Wade was such an important um, uh, uh, Supreme Court case in our lives. And it really opened up the door to, you know, women's liberation and women's strength. And, I mean, I'm, a, I'm really an advocate, a feminist. I mean, when I went to law school, it was, it was in the 60s. And it, I was in the first class at Syracuse that 
was under the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, which meant it, prior to that time, they did not have to have a certain percentage of women attending law school. And I was fortunate to be in that group where they were required to have 30% of women in my law class. So I've been deeply affected by um, women's rights because I was able to take advantage of it. And then when I graduated from law school and I came back here to practice in Dutchess County, I was one of six women practicing law. And most of the women who were practicing at that time were like in their, their 60s and 70s. These were women who were really pioneers. So I've really been you know, involved. I've been very fortunate, and I'm, I'm a strong advocate of women's rights. And it really, it really um, I wish there was more that I could do to, to, you know, to stop this, the stripping of women's rights because it's, it's not right. I mean, we're yeah. equal just like everybody else. Yeah, I, I you know, whatever, I completely agree with you. And I was in very similar positions when I was, actually, I went to law school for two months and then uh, went in the Peace Corps <laughs> and I have a whole history and came back and actually became a therapist. So I did not go back to law school, but was part of all that, uh, you, you know, the politics of the time, just what you're talking about um, at Boston University, you were at Syracuse, I was at Boston University. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I just sit here and I wonder, how did we get to this point, though? I mean, it, it just seems like, uh, you know, I mean, that's, I guess that's just my question. How did we get to this point where uh, young women or women are being stripped of their rights in, in 2019? You know, what I don't understand is that if you look at the legislatures of some of the states that are, that are changing the laws, um, there, there are women legislators. And I don't understand how they, how they can stand by and let this happen. And then you have people like Susan Collins, who's uh, flip-flopping all the time. You no, know, she's going to say, okay, I'm not going to support Trump. I'm going to block, you know, I'm going to block whatever he does. But then again, she flips. So I have no idea what's going on. To me, it's total insanity. It really is. And it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for, I think, any of us to open up the paper and see what's going on today. You know, I mean, sometimes I just can't even turn on the news because I, it's just total, utter chaos. And I do not know how we got here. Well, then you didn't answer the question <laughs> I wanted you to tell me. <laughs> how did we get here? Okay, so we have... I don't know. I, I, yeah. I don't know how we got here. I really don't. I mean, I didn't do anything to make us get here. And fortunately, I live in New York, which is a very liberal state. You know, I don't know. I do not know. Yeah. I... I guess that's something we have to think about. Uh, we have three minutes left for the end of the, and then it's the end of the interview. So, uh, but we, I do want more information about you, and because you are doing a lot of different kinds of things about your blog, where yeah. we can, yeah, and your um, website and and the books. Where can we? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little bit about. I've got a website. It's www.jodysusanmillman.com. And that's J-O-D-E. A lot of people don't know how to spell Jody. Um, and people can go there. My tour schedule is there. I've got an excerpt from the book. Um, and also they can keep up on news and events and sign up for uh, my newsletter. People can follow me on Facebook at Jody Millman, Jody Susan Millman Author. And I'm also on Instagram at Jody Millman Author. So I, I'm you know, reaching out to people on social platforms and people can email me through my website, and I'm more than happy to get back to them. I love responding to people, and I love hearing people who have read the book. And, you know, I, it's, it's very interesting about people reaching out to me. It's, it's been wonderful. 
Well, it's been great talking to you today. Um, just uh, The Midnight Call is the title of the book, and we've been talking to Jody Millman, and she's an attorney, a blogger, amongst many, many other things. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, Catherine, thank you, and I'm so glad we were able to talk a little politics. I love it. Yeah, we did. (laughs) Yep. Um, And thanks for promoting the book. I appreciate it. I really do. We'll talk to you again. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 